This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. On today's episode of Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer, we were broadcasting live from the Palace Beach Resort in Fajera. So, of course, telling you what to do out and about this beautiful emirate. We were speaking to author Cathy Urban about her new festive read for families. Plus, organisational behavioural expert Ben Hardy was joining us as we talked about the importance of psychological safety in the workplace. Plus, what do you need to know about the Good Samaritan Law in the UAE and what would you know to do? if someone went into cardiac arrest in front of you. Plus, of course, it was Wednesday, it was Pets and Vet, it was veterinary nurse Claire Taylor on hand as we talked about the most popular pet names for 2023, ridiculous gifts, and of course, taking your questions too. You're listening to Pets and Vet on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken you could be winning a three-month supply of ProPlan pet food just by getting in touch with a question, a comment, or, of course, a photo of your furry friend. And do not tell me you haven't got hundreds of them. It's probably a screensaver. Um, always love to see what Saguchi's been up to, a.k.a. Prince of Persia, loves olives and watching birds. Isabella, you are in the draw, or should I say, Saguchi is. Um, to hold our hand and guide us through the uh, ups and downs of pet parenting, I'm delighted to have from uh, the German standard group nurse Claire Taylor. How are you Claire? I'm well thank you, how are you? I'm really well thank you. Um, I've got lots to talk about, lots of questions. Um, before we talk about some of the most popular pet names of the year, tell us about your own menagerie. I'm sure as a vet nurse you've brought home a, a waif or stray or two in your time. Oh many, uh, that's how I end up with all my, my fur creatures, they're all waif and strays. Um, currently, we have a Persian that was found abandoned uh, in the marina. Um, so she's called Lady Plum because we found her around Christmas time many years ago. Aww, she's currently sunning herself adorable. on her cat balcony. And um, I also have a horse, which is not quite a small creature. But not on the balcony. <laughs> not. And she's currently sunning herself out in the desert at the moment. <laughs> oh, thank you for saying their names. I um, I love to know what people have chosen to call their pets. I find it endlessly fascinating and often really, really amusing, um, especially human names. Um, and I wanted to yeah. maybe get your read on, in terms of the most popular names that come into clinic, Claire, have you noticed any patterns? Are they really like, oh, it's another so-and-so, or any unusual ones that have caught your eye over the years? There was a few. So when, do you know Game of Thrones, the TV series that was out and very popular at the time um yeah, we had yes. a lot of um bulldogs come in with the name john snow <laughs> <laughs> um which i i thought was quite adorable and the, the two dogs that i remember from past clients were absolutely adorable and really suited Aww. the name quite random but they're well, the two that stick out in my mind it's funny you mention kind of cultural popularity because the most popular dog names for 2023 have been announced and a lot of them are based in popular culture. Now, obviously Barbie movie had a huge moment slash income uh, this year. Barbie is up there, as is Dolly. Um, they, they've become really popular. So Charles, Barbie and Taylor. So I'm guessing King Charles, Barbie the Doll and Taylor Swift are the most popular dog names of 2023, according to a new report by dog walking company Rover. But you've also got Ken, 
he was Kenneth, Albus Dumblepaws. <laughs> and, I absolutely adore that. I think that whoever that did that name is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and Alan. I mean, show me a dog called Alan, please. I would I would love them on site. Um, I have to say, this, my old boss had a dog called Steve, and I was like, well, that's just ridiculous. And then I met Steve and was like, well, it couldn't be called anything else. We've got Jarvis, Jarvis Cocker Spaniel, and we've got Lucy. Jarvis, um, isn't it? It's a strong name, right? Uh, Lucy, we didn't I, choose. I like we were her third home. Yeah, it was what we like. Um, so Ken has stored in popularity, um, and Barbie is up a whopping 1,079%. And yes, the coronation too seemed to having a bit of a, an effect on pet names. Uh, the Charles as a dog name is up 90%. And we're going to be talking about the best gifts for pets. Uh, the Times has come out in their luxury section with what I can honestly say, Claire, is some of the most ridiculous overspending on animals ever. But I'm keen to get your take in terms of what would make a good pet present. And messages coming in for you as well. We're also going to be talking about the dangers of chocolate at this time of year. Not for us humans, fear not. But for our furry <laughs> friends, some holiday dangers. And also Charlotte's been in touch saying, and I don't know what this is, um, dogs are, um, saying our dog is going to be having a TPLO procedure um, on the 2nd of oh, January. Yeah. I need to Google this saying she's really active, she's loud on furniture, she's never been created. Is this going to be a nightmare? And we've also had a message from Hannah, who's looking for um, a bit of a solution. She's expecting their first baby. Their Bichon loves sleeping on the bed. Is there a super comfy dog bed that we'd recommend? This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. We're broadcasting live from the beautiful Palace Beach Resort here in Fajera. And appropriately... There are a few beautiful cats around the property. It is Pets and Vets, and joining us now, veterinary nurse Claire Taylor. She's at the German Standard Group. Um, Claire, we've had lots of messages. We're going to try and get through as many as we can. Um, but I wanted to ask you, first of all, about some presents. It's the giving season. I read today some people <laughs> spend more on their pets than they do on their partners. Um, and the Times in their luxury section earlier this week did a roundup of what I can only describe as the most ridiculous article I've ever seen. It was Christian Louboutin uh, neon dog collars, uh, Louis Vuitton um, monogrammed leads. Uh, I quite like the barber um, kind of cuddly soft toy, the, the welly boot, a Moncler harness, Prada baseball cap for your dog, a poo bag charm, a cashmere cable knit, and an Hermes dog bag. Um, what, dare I ask, is uh, Lady Plum going to be getting for, um, for Christmas this year? Uh, she's been spoilt a little bit, so she's got an array of treats <laughs> uh, in moderation. Um, she's got a Christmas bow tie that lights up, which is very cheesy, <laughs> but um, I love making her look ridiculous. And my partner has bought her some googly eyes that we are going to um, gently pop on her, all, you know, nicely done. Um, and they wobble as she walks. So. Oh, my goodness. Please film that. Please send it to me. <laughs> Jarvis and Lucy have got some new collars. Uh, and, that, and that's about as it, that's bit, about as exotic as it gets. Although I did buy them in Spinnies the other day, a little tin of Christmas dinner dog food for um, for the big day. So hopefully we haven't got any upset tummies in the afternoon. Um, yeah, to the text line we go. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, that is very sweet. <laughs> now I feel like a bad pet parent. Let us know on the text line. What have you got, have you got for your pets for Christmas? We'd love to hear. 4001. <laughs> um, Charlotte says, hi both. Um, our dog is going to be having, and you're going to have to tell me what this is, a TPLO sure. procedure on the 2nd of January. She's really active, is allowed on furniture and our bed. She's never been crated. This is going to be a nightmare, isn't it? And then says, ah, <laughs> with quite a lot of capitals. Um, that's from Charlotte. What is a TPLO okay. procedure, Claire? So it's an orthopedic surgery. It's basically a tibial plateau leveling osteotomy. So basically it's a surgery that's on the knee to repair cruciate ligament damage. Um, footballers get it quite often. Um, so it is quite a big surgery. It's a long procedure, but recovery is usually very good. But they, she will have to crate train. Um, so what I would suggest doing is um, trying to get her crate trained early before the procedure reward her with treats and stuff in the crate so she associates, associates it with being a happy place, not a place of punishment. Um, mm. And that's one of the best ways to do it. But if she can do it sooner rather than on the day of the procedure, she'll have a lot more positive outcome. But it is imperative that she does crate rest after the surgery and follow the vet's instructions for post-operative care. It's really awful to see our little ones kind of in pain and healing and, and not themselves but it, it's a bit like kids they you know they do tend to bounce back really really quickly but anything we can do as you say to you know protect them and, and keep them keep them as uh, as calm and as fixed in one place as possible so sooner the better would make a big difference Absolutely. um because if she doesn't follow tying, the instructions sorry. um the surgery could sorry the surgery could um uh it could go backwards and then she'd be kind of back at stage one so it is imperative mm -hmm. that she does do the, the crate the crate resting Okay. All right. Thanks, Claire. Message from Rekka saying, I've bought each of my three hounds a dog towel from Spinney's and they also have Christmas collars. Okay. Lovely. Right. I'm, I'm putting this on my shopping list. Um, a message from Hannah saying, we're currently expecting our first baby. Congratulations. Um, but unfortunately, our comfort-seeking, duvet-loving Bichon has managed to wangle her way back onto sleeping in our bed most nights. So I'm looking for a super-duper comfy dog bed, ideally with a canopy or roof because she seems to like snuggling under. Um, any recommendations or indeed, is this about us rather than the bed? I think you might have hit the nail on the head there, Hannah. It might not be about a super-duper dog bed. It might be just wanting to be close to you. Um, yeah. Any insights there? Um, bed, for me, unfortunately not. Um, I do know a gentleman called Craig who, I'm not sure if I can recommend him on the yeah, air, but Craig go for it. Love a shout-out. Amazing. Uh, it was a business that they started up in covid and they made homemade dog beds where you could put like memory foam mattresses in and they would do them with a canopy and carve their names onto them. So last I heard he was still doing that and he makes amazing pieces of um, equipment, um, everything from dog beds to Christmas ornaments to, to wooden sculptures. Um, he, he's on Instagram, uh, it might be worth checking him out. Um, otherwise a big I research on the internet about dog beds. <laughs> or indeed behaviorists um no you, you, you're <laughs> yeah. right i am um, i think i know craig's wife debbie um they um yeah. craig, craig's carpentry underscore dubai um drop them a, drop yes. a little line um we love love supporting small businesses here so that is yeah. an absolutely he, he great shout um, joining us this afternoon, we've got veterinary nurse Claire Taylor. Up next, we're going to be talking about some of the hidden dangers at Christmas, and I'm maybe not hidden dangers. We're talking 
chocolate and why it can be so, so toxic. If you've got any questions for Claire, you can, of course, reach out. She's a veterinary nurse working at the German Standard Group. Messages we've got and we're going to be coming to. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Joining us live on the line, we've got veterinary nurse Claire Taylor speaking to us from the German Standard Group. Um, we, since getting dogs, Claire, have stopped putting chocolate on the tree and do candy canes instead, much to the annoyance of our children. Um, and this is because just how toxic chocolate is for our furry friends. Would you mind telling us a little bit about some of the signs and symptoms we need to look out for should they get their greedy jaws on a chocolate stash and maybe even some of the amounts or if there's a calculation that we need to be aware of? Sure. So yes, so chocolate is very toxic for dogs, especially the, the, the darker chocolate or cooking chocolate. Um, it basically contains theobromine and caffeine, which are stimulants, and dogs are very, very sensitive to this. So some of the symptoms they might show, depending on what they've eaten and um, uh, the type of chocolate they've eaten, could be vomiting and diarrhea, uh, rapid breathing, um, kind of restlessness. Sorry, I said that incorrectly. Hyperactivity, um, an increased heart rate, and going along the worst case scenario could be seizures. Oh gosh! Okay. Um, so, the best way I find to do it, what I advise clients is is to go online and look at a chocolate toxicity calculator. Calculator. The one I recommend is on a website called Vets Now. It is a UK website. However. Um, it's done in pictograms, so if your English is not particularly great, you can actually look at the pictures and click which one is relevant to your dog. So it does pictures of the size of your dog, it does the colours of the chocolate, and then there's a little line at the bottom where you, you put roughly how much chocolate you think the dog has ingested, and it will immediately give you a result of whether you need not worry or call your vet immediately and give you advice and guidelines on what to do. I'm just on the website now, so it's vets-now.com. It's got that toxicity calculator. It says how much chocolate can a, can a dog eat? But as you say, so much depends on, you know, white versus milk versus dark versus exactly. one square, you know, yes, versus, exactly. you know, the, the, the family bar of dairy milk, for example. But yes. I think that's a, that's a really good recommendation for people to bookmark. Vets-now.com. Um, and then ultimately, how important is it to bring the, the animal in to you as soon as possible? And what do you guys do once there? So it, it depends on again, how much chocolate they've ingested. Like if, a, for example, a toy dog has ingested an 80 gram bar of dark chocolate, we would immediately do treatment. Um, depending on how quickly they get, get the animal to the vets, we, we can look at inducing vomiting, but it depends on the time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's not a possibility, then we would look at putting them on fluids for support, giving them gastroprotectants to protect their guts, and basically treating for any of those symptoms that they possess. Um, so anti-vomiting medication to make them feel less sick. Um, so basically supportive, supportive treatment. What other hidden holiday dangers might there be? Claire? I mean, talking chocolate there. Um, we've spoken mm-hmm. in the past about in, ingesting things like tinsel in cats and actually just how scarily common that might be. What about plants or other human food that we might be, you yep. know, having out on our tables? There's actually uh, quite a bit that probably people aren't aware of. Um, so one is grapes or uh, raisins, sultanas or currants. Mm. Um, they contain a tartaric acid and animals are sensitive to these and it can cause renal failure in dogs. 
There's no calculator for that. The best advice I can give you is to, to call your vet and they will advise you over the phone. But again, depending on how quickly you can get them to the vet, they might encourage the animal to vomit and again, provide supportive treatment in the, in the hospital for them. Mm. Um, other ones are onions, garlics, leeks from the Allium family. Um, these cause a breakdown of red blood cells, which can lead to anemia in dogs, which can be quite a huge issue. Um, the symptoms for this, uh, again, gastric issues such as vomiting and diarrhea, uh, lethargy, dullness, weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, cooked bones, a big one. I, I get a lot of questions about can we feed our animals cooked bones, and the answer is no. When bones are cooked, they're quite brittle. Um, so when an animal chews them and swallows them, they can actually rupture the GI tract, so they can potentially perforate the stomach or the large intestine, resulting in, in surgery. These are worst case scenarios, obviously. Um, just want to give everyone the, the best advice possible. No, um, I really appreciate that because I think that's yeah. kind of a, a, a common trope, isn't it? Of, you know, mm-hmm. give a dog a bone and these bones tied up with ribbons and da 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 da. da. But as you say, yeah. when they are cooked, the integrity Cooked's, of that yeah. bone changes. You know, they can, sh- shards can break off. Uh, yeah, choking and as you say, kind of perforating tractors really really scary yeah. um yeah. and yeah just the just the usual i think it's just thinking it's a bit like when you have it when you have it, like a baby <laughs> thinking about child proofing your home at this time you know what's at that yes, at that absolutely. height you know whether it's decorations or food um if you want a bit of clarification if you want any more information get in touch with claire with us for just a few more minutes um to the text line we go and as i said it's your last chance to tell me on 4001 on the app or the whatsapp if you need a bit of help with the health or behavior of your furry friend i am so (laughs) so nervous to read this out (laughs) this is from carl and greedy gordon simply says mice question mark um gordon is a golden retriever and twice now i've rescued live mice from his mouth i'm pretty sure he thinks they're toys he only seems to pick them up when he sees me coming to end his fun with the last one i rescued he seemed to be making swallowing attempts as i got close and I'm wondering what would happen. Is it even possible? I mean, the mind boggles, quite frankly. Um, the, the mice in our house did significantly reduce when we got dogs. Thank goodness. Not It was not the thing when we had people over for dinner to see a mouse going from the back door into the kitchen. Um, so how concerned does Carl and indeed Gordon need to be about a little protein-based snack? Um, I think... It's, it's not too much of an issue. I'd make sure he's up to date with his deworming. Obviously, um, they, they can carry some form of parasite. So just make sure he's up to date with his, his deworming. Um, but other than that, and I would, I mean, if he's happy with the mice being in his garden, great. Otherwise, you could look at calling an exterminator to maybe mm-hmm. try and um, get rid of them to prevent his dog playing with them. But my advice with that would be just to make sure he's up to date with his deworming. Um, and just if he gets... If they, the mice bite him or anything, just make sure he cleans the wound uh, straight away. But nothing, nothing too serious that I'm aware of with him playing with mice. Feel oh, sorry Carl. for the mice. Good, good, good <laughs> luck. Good luck. And Gordon, again, great name for a dog, truly. Got, I love um, that Nadia's name. been in... Brilliant. It's great, isn't it? Greedy Gordon. <laughs> um, Nadia's asking, can you recommend a treatment for dog's mange? We've brought home a rescue who's in a bad way. He's got an area on his bum. It looks like I gave him a bad shave with my husband's razor. I didn't. Um, the skin is really uh, red and scaly. Is this a case of coming in to figure out if it actually is mange, Claire? Yes. So I would advise that they take him to their local vet. Usually they will do a skin scrape to ascertain what type of parasite it is. 
and they will get a, an appropriate treatment plan for that. Usually with uh, various types of mange, it's usually a medicated shampoo uh, followed by a topical treatment. So you're familiar with like the flea and teak treatment that we used to put on the back of their necks. They have similar ones for different parasites as well. And possibly, depending on the severity of it, they may introduce steroids just to help with any uh, sorry with any itching. Um, sometimes with mange, mange cases, animals are very, very itchy, and the only way to control that is with a low dose and a short course of, of steroids. There's also topical creams as well that can help, but definitely take him to your, to your vet, get him thoroughly checked, because even though it may be around his bottom, as you say, it could be in between his paws as well, because it spreads quite rapidly. So definitely a vet check um, and get on a, a good treatment plan, and you'll be All fine. Right. La Last question of the day. No name on this one, but we do know what the cat is called, so I'm, I'm happy, to be honest. We've got a 10-year-old neutered male cat called Percy. Um, Percy has been in the family since he was a, since Percy was a kitten. Um, Health-wise, very healthy, apart from some urinary tract stones four years ago. He's got a special diet, but nothing else in 10 years. Have noticed his breath is getting a bit smelly. It's not bad, but when he yawns, it's like a meaty smell. Any tips on making it better? Um, I thought he might need his teeth cleaning, but I've no idea really how to go about it. So would you mind just speaking briefly in terms of cats and dental care and anything that no sure. name needs to do about Percy? <laughs> okay. Um, so there's a couple of things you can do. One is um, you can get a solution that you can put in your animal's water, which has a, a, a very low chlorhexidine solution in, which helps break down bacteria in the mouth that helps with smelly breath, okay? That's one thing you could do. Because he has a urinary issue, I wouldn't recommend changing his diet. There is something uh, called the dental diet, which also has an enzymatic process, which helps break down bacteria. But as he's a urinary case, I would keep on his specialized diet. But for other people, they could look at the dental diet. Um, the next answer would be to go to your vet and get a dental check. So they will check the teeth. There's a, a dental grading system that we use. And it will just tell you the level of, of dental tartar or any issues that they have in the mouth. And they will be able to advise whether you actually need a scale and polish to get rid of that, that smell or whether that you can go home with just home care treatment to, to reduce any um, bacteria in the mouth. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon um you explained things so so well honestly i really do appreciate it some oh, some fab insights there and have a lovely happy holiday it sounds like you're gonna have i will lots you of, do uh, have a great christmas very friend adventures i shall i'm now feeling guilty that i haven't got my pets enough so i'm gonna have to rectify that stockings. <laughs> stockings for dogs that's a show for another day <laughs> claire taylor veterinary <laughs> nurse at the german standard group really really appreciate your time We're live from the Palace Beach Resort here in Fajera and the man to get us all excited about coming to this amazing Emirate, we've got Amit and he is the Managing Director of, appropriately, Fajera Adventures. Born and raised here, how are you sir? I'm good, thank you. Thank you, I have to say, not that I want to play favourites when it comes to Emirates, but I do love Fajera. And the main reason is right behind us, the yeah. water. Oh my gosh. Would you mind taking us back in time a little bit? What was it like growing up here, Emma? I mean, Fujairah is a very special place for me, and I'm sure it's for everybody as well. Fujairah offers something that I don't think we can have this anywhere else in the world. The mountains, the sea, the ethnicity. And we, we witnessed this when we arrived to Fujairah. My father was here about 40 plus years ago. Oh yeah, And Fujairah 
has always been this beautiful community, this simple community that we reached in and we were so welcomed mm-hmm. and to be and to be part of this growing up and seeing all these developments happening over the years is just something very beautiful. Well, we had a bit of a moment last night when we were driving here. So my parents who are just are here as well because they're yes. here for the holidays, we brought them to Fajera. They lived in uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi in 1977, wow. 78 and used to come camping here wow and for them to see Fajera City because they haven't been back since the late 70s they were like what look at this mosque <laughs> look at the city da, 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 da. but actually what's really special about it is some of it is just so unchanged and that's sure. the the heart of it to me it's that nature side exactly and I get really frustrated when people talk about the UAE being all skyscrapers and malls because True. it does a huge disservice and um, tell us a little bit about the tourism development of Fajera, what have you seen unfold over the decades? Oh, amazing. So for the past um, five years, I would say, Fajera has played a really good role in developing adventure tourism in, 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 in general. Yeah. So what we have, because of the beautiful nature that we have, and you mentioned a very nice point, that we kept the heart of Fajera, the authenticity of it, the beautiful culture. Yes, it's getting developed over the years. However, we kept the beautiful... Um, 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 heart of it yeah mm-hmm. so what happened for the past five years we worked on so many different levels like hosting international events international competitions new developments coming up and I think with the next 10 years from now Fajera is going to be one of the main hubs of tourism around the whole region he's calling it so yeah, when people are coming here Emma, what are some of the things on the Fajera bucket list what is your job now is to mm. make us all go Right, we're hopping in the car from sure. Dubai. It's, it's, you know, it took me less than an hour. I think it was an hour and 23 minutes last right. night to get here. It's super, super easy drive. Yeah. But when we come here, what are we doing? Well, you have so many different options. So you can start with your traditional simple stuff. Like when we talk about your traditional tourism, you can visit the, the beautiful locations, the new um, uh, upcoming projects like the Umbrella Beach, the hotels, Hang the on, beaches. Slow, slow down. Yeah. You know all of this. I don't. What's the, what's the Umbrella Beach? Oh, the Umbrella Beach is a beautiful big location here. It has it's 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 the most beautiful location that we have here at the moment. It has so many different activities, coffee shops, restaurants, a beautiful beachfront. It's free access for everybody. And you come in and there's over, I think, 15 different restaurants from Ooh. all over the world. Really good brands. Uh, a lot of them are locally made. So these, these restaurants are from the locals of Fujera. Mm. So once you go in there, you can see the how the whole um, tourism scene had changed over these years. So that's Umbrella Beach. I yeah. mean, for me... I find Fajera really unique because it's so mountainous. Right. So when we come camping, and we've had a few hairy moments right. in the car because <laughs> it's quite steep, it but we've woken up literally above the clouds. You right. know, some of the some of the camping here is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. And then you crash down to the Indian Ocean, and it's got some of the best diving in the UAE. And we're going to be talking about what to do for families as well. We are going to put two the MD of Fajera Adventures, Amma Zinedin. Um, a bit of a dream itinerary. That's what we're going to be challenging with. Plus, Discovery Channel is coming to the Emirate. What is in store there? That's all coming your way next.
Those are also the numbers to get in touch if you've got any questions about the Emirate of Fajera. And who better to ask than Emma Zainuddin? He is the Managing Director of Fajera Adventures. Um, all about tourism, about celebrating, about educating about this incredible Emirate. So in terms of people coming in, um, what have, what's proven to be really, really popular over the last kind of few months and years? And we think about how amazing this weather is. Where are we going? What are we doing? So the first thing I suggest to everybody um, is camping. Everybody wants to camp. Everybody wants to try it at least once during the season. Yeah, we have so many different locations. We have uh, Fujairah Adventure Park. We have the uh, trails that's around Fujairah. Um, of course, you can check each one of them on our websites and our social media. Each one of these trails have signages. We have rangers going around all over the weekend to make sure that you're safe, you're happy, and they can offer any assistance if you want to. Amazing. I'm not going to reveal where we go camping in Fajero because oh, yeah. I, I was <laughs> I was sworn to secrecy. But what I would say is the next morning we've gone hiking Amazing. in the wadis and frog spawn and frogs and lizards oh, yeah. and you know. It's I mean that's the beauty of it. So, so you, you get to see a lot of different things. You can you can you feel like you're just an hour away from Dubai. But then you just magically in between the beautiful nature of Fujairah. Yeah, and you will witness a lot of different things. Um, Hint's been in touch saying, um, hi both, any recommendations for taking some friends out diving? They arrive in January, they've got paddy qualifications, but would need picking up from Dubai ideally. Do you, do you, could you guys help with this? Do you know anyone that could? Uh, definitely. So we have at least now, we have 10 certified um, diving uh, centers here in Fujairah, highly qualified, amazing services, and they do a range picking up from different Emirates. So for example, now there is one uh, one trip, it's called the Discovery, a Discovery uh, Dive. Yeah. So for instance, um, you come in, you register, they can arrange the pickup from, for you, and then you arrive here and they offer a whole day. Even they have a nice package where you can book in the hotel, and then after this you can... Uh, you can go fishing as well so all depending on how long do you want it to be done for and how, how long are you willing to stay in Fajera. For anyone that hasn't been to Fajera and hasn't seen Dibba Rock can you explain about just what's so special oh, about this gorgeous. part of the Emirate? So Dibba Rock or uh, the Bird Island or the a lot of people call it Snoopy, Snoopy. Island. <laughs> why, yeah, so. Why, so why, why do people call it Snoopy, Snoopy. Island? It looks like Snoopy when he's upside down. <laughs> yeah? He's laying down <laughs> on his house. Yeah, it's very interesting. And um, just a beautiful location because it is, it is uh, actually a protected area. It's a protected area in, in Fujairah. So in that area, you can see sea turtles, you can see coral reefs, you can see fish, you can see birds. And it's it's very accessible. And it's a unique feature. Yeah, it's a, so it's a lot of these photos one picture in my mind since i was a kid there's a beautiful painting of fujera we had it in our house it's it's the the bird island or snoopy island with the beach of fujera there were no hotels back then wow. but now when i come and see all of that coming up all these hotels it's just like it's marvelous beautiful we did a little kayaking trip around around we call it snoopy island and yeah. i mean the number of sea turtles was yeah. absolutely it's gorgeous astounding people have seen gentle nice sharks um, but tell us about the coral conservation that's going on so, as well so this is this is one of the efforts of Fajera government is to actually to make sure to enhance and to protect the, 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 the natural life here, the flora and fauna and the sea life, yeah, the marine life, sorry. So so we have a program which is called the Coral Reef Plantation Program. We've been working on it with the Ministry of uh, Climate and Environment. environment. Uh, we've been working on it for uh, a while. Uh, what we do is we get the mothers, or the mother of, of, of the coral reefs and we try to plant them. We have a lot of volunteers. We work with Dubai police, Abu Dhabi police, ADNOC, schools and everything and it's been very successful. It was, uh, it was, showed, it was showed in 
COP28 um, conference yeah and it's it's very interesting it's beautiful it's such a choice though isn't it to it is to to do that it is you know in terms of preserving this nature for future generations you know during COP28 we spoke um, at length and and rightly so about just how important the ocean is for well everything from lowering the temperature of the planet to just how much sea life is actually there and we've had a message going saying shout out to the oysters yeah definitely (laughs) we love orfogera oysters (laughs) it is really unique to think about them growing here and also i mean in terms of other facts and figures around fagera are you the only emirate that's got access to the indian ocean we are actually yeah this 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 is the whole point so this gives us a beautiful privilege to have this this look i would say fagera has its own atmosphere I mean, seriously, after you pass from Fujira, uh, from Sheikh Khalifa's road and you come down, you will see the temperatures drop. You'll see how the whole, it's the Indian Ocean meeting up with Hajar Mountain mm-hmm. and all together makes a beautiful emirate, which is Fujira. Um, I know you're obviously very forward looking, but can we go back in history as mm-hmm. well? And for anyone that's looking for, you know, a cultural or historic experience here, are there anything that should be on that bucket list? Oh, there? definitely. So I would suggest one thing. We will announce it very soon. Oh, come so, on. Which is... Uh, <laughs> I'll talk about it. So, did you guys know that we have ancient trails and petroglyphs in Fujairah that go back 3,500 BC? Fujairah is not it's not 52 or 53 years old. Fujairah is ancient. We have copper copper mines that exist here. We can offer these tours. We have right now 16 certified tour companies in Fujairah, adventure tour companies. They can communicate with us. We can book a beautiful cultural tour around Fujairah, and we can have one specific hike, which is called the petroglyphs hike. And we walk around these petroglyphs, and each one of them were analyzed by the experts, by the uh, archaeologists, and we can exactly, each one of these drawings on the rock can tell you a story. And nothing more beautiful than, wow. than, than a hike and get to understand and to know the story behind these petroglyphs, that these people that lived here thousands of years ago, how did they survive, how did they live, how, it's just amazing. Now, my kids are just over there, um, and I'm thinking on the family front, you know, Definitely. apart from hiking and, and camping, what is, what's proven really popular with families visiting the Emirates oh, of Fajara? So, so we have these amazing trails. We have Wadi Abadla Trail, which is a beautiful hike between the farms. When you hike, and you meet with all these amazing farmers, and they're so welcoming. Mm-hmm. You have also the uh, Wadi Dhanhao, which is famous to be the Rainbow Valley. Yeah. The f- I, I Googled it earlier. Yeah. I've... I must confess, I was invited on that hike and, and didn't didn't go. Um, but I was so so jealous of those that did because the way that the you know the color gradient of the rocks—it's called the rainbow yes. hike for a reason. Or spectrum valley. Exactly. Everyone do a little Google image search of it because it's absolutely okay. incredible. Can, can I say one thing? And this is this is uh, this is not a claim. This is the reality. Fujairah is the second location in the world to study the the core of the Earth after the Himalayas. So the way the formation the Hajar Mountains were formed helped archaeologists and geolo- geologists understand how the Earth was formed. So Rainbow Valley or Dunha Trail is one of these locations. Those spectrums, those colors coming up, this is from the heart of the Earth coming up. And that helped us to know the tectonic plates, how they were formed. So it's very interesting. We have so many people coming into Fujairah. Instead of going to the Himalayas, <laughs> they come into Fujairah to study it. Um, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your My passion pleasure. for your home, as you said, Definitely. born and raised here. For anyone that wants to find out more, whether it is looking at diving, historic tours, 
maybe some of the trails as well. Yeah. Um, any resources, any websites we can point people sure. in the direction of? Of course, you can follow Discover Fujera. It's the online platform to know about all the activities and events and everything that's happening in the Emirate of Fujera. And they can also follow Fujera Adventures and they can follow Fujera Adventure Park, which is specifically that project. We have so many events coming up. And you are filming with Discovery Channel very soon. Yes. So I would say to UA residents, get here while you can because it's going to get very, very popular <laughs> soon. Thank you so much, Thank Emma. So really, much. really appreciate it. If you want details, you can send me the word for Jerry. You can send me F-U-J. I will send you those links so you can come along. Well, unpacking psychological safety in the workplace, it's an often undervalued, but actually a really significant component that can lead to business and individual success. We've seen a really big focus on employee wellness, um, and rightly so. We know it boosts productivity and performance, but also creates a culture that people actually want to spend time in. Um, joining us to talk about this idea of psychological safety, its importance, what organizations can do, perhaps what we can do as individuals. We've got Professor Ben Hardy with us today, Clinical Professor of Organizational Behaviour at London Business School. How are you, Professor Ben? I'm good, I'm good. How are you, Helen? You I'm, well? Yeah, really well. We uh, wish you could have come to Fajera. We're, uh, we're on the beach. <laughs> but... Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm looking out over a rather grey oh. uh, Regent's Park at the moment. Oh, it's very beautiful, no. but it is. Great. Probably you have weather. I think we do have better weather today. Um, I've, I've got so many questions for you about this idea of psychological safety. Before we get onto the topic, I would love it if you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit about organization behavior. What is that study of? And could you perhaps give us some examples that you know everyone listening today can perhaps relate to in, in real life, Ben? Yeah, sure. Uh, so organizational behavior, I mean, it sort of does what it says on the tin. It's, um, it's, it's how people behave in organizations, which covers a whole variety of areas i mean it's things like ranging from decision making we'll talk about organizational culture we can talk about um, how you influence other people power networking um, change is a big theme mm -hmm. so it's all really the kind of psychology of how people and organizations interact now to kick things off would you mind providing us with a bit of a, an overview about what psychological safety means in the context of the workplace and why it actually is such a crucial factor for organizational success yeah it's so it's it's one been one of the big topics in teams for about the last few years and largely driven by a you know brilliant scholar at harvard called amy edmondson just to tell you a little story that google did an interesting piece of research they were trying to work out what made teams good what made for a good team and they they had this project aristotle it ran for a couple of years they looked at 180 teams, they did interviews, they did all kinds of performance me measures. They did a load of analysis and they came up with absolutely nothing. Oh, um, <laughs> so they had teams that. where, yeah, teams where almost exactly the same people were in the team, but they, they one, one performed well and one performed badly. Mm. Then they got some anthropologists in and they said it's about psychological safety. And really, the, the thing is, the key to it is this idea of defining psychological safety, which is. It's it's the sort of belief that you'll not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns or mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so in these teams that were performing really well, they could actually talk about stuff that wasn't working or they were worried about. Um, and we've all been in teams that are like that, but we've also probably been in teams where you can't really speak up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the kind of I want answers, not excuses type mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so if people can talk about what's bothering them or what their worries are, you know, you can go about addressing them. And as a consequence, unsurprisingly, these teams tend to perform better. 
Many organisations, Ben, strive to create this psychologically safe environment for their employees. Um, would you mind maybe sharing some strategies, practices that leaders, companies could implement? Maybe they're looking at, you know, policies for 2024 and beyond to help yeah. foster a workplace culture that does promote psychological safety. What would you love to see UAE organisations, of course, that's where I'm in particular, start to implement? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, I mean, this is happening a lot in UAE as much as anywhere else. Um, but the, the kind of key thing, I think, is the overall frame. So when things have gone wrong, it's very tempting to kind of to, to go and have what I experience, what I call the joy of blame. It's fantastic fun <laughs> blaming someone, you know, because you feel better about yourself. And this person's clearly an idiot. and They've screwed it up. And you're, you know, you're marvellous. You're golden. But yeah. That, yeah. I mean, exactly. And it's I mean, that's not really about the person screwing up. That's about us trying to make ourselves feel good. Mm -hmm. But so rather than sort of going into blame, I think it, try and think about the learning aspect of it. So the overall frame is if something's gone wrong, you know, things don't normally go wrong for one reason alone or just because someone's bad or unpleasant. There's usually a whole chain of things. So rather than seeing it as a failure of a person, something's obviously gone wrong. What can we do to make sure this doesn't happen next time? You know, that's the that's the kind of overall frame. Or what can we learn from this? Um, so I think that the, the overall frame has got to be learning because we're here to try and get better, you know, to try and do a better job. And then I think there are some things that you can do. Um, so there's some sort of personal behaviours I think are really important. I always tell my, my students and, and, and executives that I teach that you should say the second thing that comes into your head. Um, you know, so if someone brings you bad news, it's tempting to go, oh, God, why the hell are you telling me that? You know, um, and often our initial response is sort of identity based. It's about protecting ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and that when we think about thinking, we've got two two mechanisms. We've got this thinking fast and thinking slow. And that's the fast mechanism is defensive. It's about protecting us. The slower mechanism is more deliberative and actually is asking the good questions. Mm -hmm. So the trouble is. You know, imagine you're in a meeting and you present something and someone says, I think that's a terrible idea. You know, the initial response is tempting to go, no, it's not. But actually, that's, you know, and that that's us defending. The interesting question is, why do they think it's a terrible idea? That's the that's the question you want to ask. But that's sometimes your thinking fast mechanism has run away with you before you get there. So, so responding rather than reacting. That is that. Am I, am I oversimplifying things a bit there? <laughs> no, no, I don't. No, I don't think. I don't think so at all. It's 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 the sort of a slight choice between mm. going with your sort of instinct and actually just squashing that as best one can and waiting for the interesting thought, the second thing that comes into your head. You know, giving that slower, more deliberative system a bit of time to get online. Let's motivate some organisations um, listening today. You know, research does suggest that feeling psychologically safe at work is really closely linked, of course, to employee well-being. But how does a positive, inclusive work environment contribute to mental health and that overall satisfaction of employees? And I guess what role does leadership play in that dynamic as well, Ben? Yeah, so, so just I, I will talk about that. The one thing I do want to say is psychologically safe environments are not cuddly you know this isn't this isn't a, this isn't quite about happiness because this is the this is the danger that everyone thinks oh it's going to be lovely in fact some of the most challenging and productive environments are psychologically safe but they're pretty challenging but it's safe to have the challenge if that makes sense yeah it absolutely does um, so it's you don't sit there going oh everyone agrees with me this is marvelous quite often actually you'll be a bit uncomfortable because someone will say well look come on ben what about this or do you think that works mm -hmm. but 
I think I think the mechanism by which it makes it more um, th that makes it rewarding for people is the fact that you feel you're growing, you're developing, you're getting better. Yeah. You know, you're picking up stuff and you're at one with others. You know, we're all contributing. And I think that's that's very important. I think that's a really important distinction to make in terms of this isn't about, you know, you're never going to be challenged and, you know, everyone's going to be holding hands all the time. It's exactly that. It's, it's creating a space where you do feel safe to to innovate to others, to challenge yourself. Um, and I think that leadership, you know, setting by example, that role modelling um, must be really, really crucial. Um, we're going to expand on that in just a few minutes. Um, joining us, um, we're delighted to be welcoming Professor Ben Hardy, Clinical Professor of Organisational Behaviour at London Business School. If you've got any questions for Ben, you can, of course, reach out 4001. Um, you've got the app, you've got the WhatsApp. No name, no name says any links or books I can send to my boss, who's a deeply unhappy man for what it's worth. And Jamil saying, what if you're a small company that doesn't even have HR, never mind a mental health policy? Interesting points there in terms of the role of an individual and in a small company. We're going to be putting those to Ben Hardy next. Joining us now from London Business School, we've got Clinical Professor of Organisational Behaviour, Ben Hardy. Um, we've had a number of messages and questions for you, Ben. We're exploring the idea of psychological safety and why it's perhaps undervalued given what it can offer both individuals and of course organizations as well and I wanted to ask you about the role of leaders or leadership when it comes to modeling this idea of feeling psychologically safe and of course some of the policies that can be put in place would you mind sharing um, perhaps the importance of that and what that can actually look like in practice yeah no I think that, that's that's the key question isn't it um, so I think that there's a couple of things that leaders can do themselves and then they can do for the group so Part of it, I think you could, you, as you, I think your expression of modelling the behaviour is absolutely spot on. So acknowledging your own fallibility, that you don't have all the answers um, and actually inviting challenge from others and appreciating that challenge when it happens, that can be very, very valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and asking lots and lots of questions to try and, you know, rather than turning up and being the person who has all the answers and, you know, listen to me, I am the great leader, actually sort of exploring the thing. So there's that that you can do as the leader. The other thing you can do for the group is try and make it so that everyone contributes. So there's some interesting research, almost independent of meeting size. In most meetings, what one or two people do most of the talking. Um, doesn't matter whether it's a group of four, a group of eight, a group of 16, one or two people do most of the talking. So an interesting role for the leader is to try and kind of amplify the shy and hold back the noisy ones mm -hmm. you know work out what gets people to contribute and then try and do more of that um, so those are a few things that you can do there's a sort of personal piece around modeling the behavior but then there's also some things you can do for the group to make sure that the group kind of behaves correctly it's a real choice though isn't it to recognize mm -hmm. that and, and, and make a difference and I guess you maybe can't improve what you can't measure so I wanted to ask you know for organizations looking if you can gauge the level of psychological safety within their teams, are there any tools or methods that you recommend for assessing it? And then in terms of what do you then do with that information? So establishing what that level of psychological safety is, Professor Ben, what do you recommend? Yeah, I mean, typically it's done with surveys and there's some very nice little questions, uh, set of questions that have been used a lot and sort of well validated um, that that enable you to look at it across the, across the piece. Um, there's a there's a I'm, I'm happy to put a link to um, there's a heart, nice Harvard Business Review article that looks at the degree of learning that goes into an organization and there's a sort of 
there's a, a psychological safety component within there. And the nice thing about that is you can then compare it to norms for other organizations and see where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that works quite well. I think the other thing to look at is what are your people coming and talking to you about? Um, are they coming with personal problems, um, you know, things that might not necessarily be things that you necessarily want to hear? I mean, I always think a good test is would you go and talk to your boss if you were looking at another job? Oh, that's a great question. That's a really because, interesting one. Ooh, because I'm, if you're truly psychologically safe, you absolutely should. You should have mm-hmm. the conversation. Um, I mean, I, I have to say, in many jobs I've been in, I'm not sure I would have talked to the boss about looking for another job. But but it's sort of interesting to see where that, where that would be. If it's truly psychologically safe, that's a conversation you should be able to have. Let's get the text line, Ben. We've only got a couple of minutes, but I've got some really interesting mm. questions for you. One saying, yeah. what are the psychological impacts on employees in organisations that have frequent leadership changes? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just very difficult, isn't it? Because mm. it, unless all the leaders are very similar, which is unlikely, you know, you'll have you're constantly trying to adapt to different styles um and that's just you know that's just tricky because you don't quite know where stuff's going to land um if it's a very psychologically safe organization you might be okay but it's very hard because there's always a bit of trying to size up what the what the leadership is like and what do they want and how do they respond to things how do they deal with bad news you know all the things that we know so um, I, I don't have a magic answer for that. no of course not but but, it, but it's, it's, it's really well worth raising to. exactly and also yeah. having I guess sensitivity and awareness around you know HR and that new leader coming in that this will be a time of you know of unrest and adjustment um no name on this one saying any links or books I can on this I can send to my boss who's a deeply unhappy man for what it's worth right you mentioned before (laughs) you mentioned before um from Harvard some research there um for anyone that wants to kind of look into this further what, what would you recommend Ben yeah, so Amy Edmondson's got a couple of books. She's her original one on psychological safety on its own is called The Fearless Organization. I think that's very good. The one that if you've got a boss, a nice who who's uh, who you think needs it, a, a nice excuse at the moment might be her latest book, um, which is called The Right Kind of Wrong, which is about errors and mistakes. And the pretext you could use for giving it to your boss is it's just won the Financial Times Book of the Year. So it doesn't look like you're telling your boss they're terrible it looks like a thoughtful (laughs) gift that uh that you know is um is is really kind of bringing them up to the now Um, absolutely i mean what what a timely secret santa if you could organize that behind the scenes Someone to find yeah, when it on they get 75 debt. copies, I think that might be an issue. <laughs> Take the hint. Um, and Jamil's saying, what if you're in a really small company that doesn't have HR, never mind a mental health policy? And we're talking there about kind of big organisations, but yeah. you know that can absolutely be the case where you feel might feel vulnerable in a small organisation. Um, any insights on that, Ben, before I let you get back to, to dreary London? Well, it's to marking, actually, so this is lovely. <laughs> but the... Uh, yeah, I th- so this isn't ju- this isn't a thing that HR need to do. I mean, you know, HR might provide training and things around this. This is absolutely psychological safety is absolutely something you can produce in a small group, but you have to kind of take the steps to do it, um, and that might be a, really a piece around kind of influencing, um, uh, you know, influencing other other people to actually adopt the strategy. But there's no reason this this is not a big organisation thing. And in fact, I work in a small team. We do a, a we run a course for a global um fast-moving consumer goods manufacturer um and it's it's there's only three of us but it's a very very psychologically safe group and we have very kind of candid conversations so it's like a mini organization we've 
between the three of us mm-hmm. you know and it is things like I think you should cut that bit out. I don't think that bit's working. And it's like, no, no I like it. You, do you see what I mean? And you have this conversation. Absolutely. And um, but it's done respectfully. It's it's yeah. done um, empathetically where needed. Um, thank you so much. I think that's really a fascinating one to think about as we go into the new year as well, about how psychologically safe you do feel in the company and, and could that ultimately yeah. help you stay or encourage you to leave if it's if it's beyond measure um professor ben hardy thank you so much next time you're in dubai pop into the studio always love chatting with you um and have a very happy healthy holiday season into 2024 um professor ben hardy is the clinical professor of organizational behavior at london business school talking there on the topic of psychological safety Fantastic to have you with us this afternoon. And we're having a closer look now at the Good Samaritan Law. Joining us from Alzara Hospital is Dr. Sabrina Baduk, consultant in emergency medicine and the head of emergency department. So, Dr. Sabrina, I'm sure it's a very, very busy time for you right now in terms of sports and partying and guests in town. So, thank you for making time. What's keeping you busy at the hospital right now, Doctor? Hi, good, good afternoon, Helen. Um, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, what's keeping us busy right now, uh, tons of uh, patients who need help from us, uh, a lot of fluids, flu season right now, um, so we've got quite a bit of, uh, of patients that we need to help, and that's really what's, uh, what's going on at the moment. So, um, yeah, and congratulations on the, uh, on the arrival. Oh, I know, little Nazreen. I'm awesome. having, I know. Um, but thank you, thank you for all the work that you guys do. I think, you know, my goodness, we know that healthcare workers have been on the front line for a long time, but I think the pandemic really brought it into view just how crucial the work that you guys do in, in A&E is. Yeah, so thank you, Dr. Sabrina. Um, we're talking about the Good Samaritan Law, recently approved. Would you mind giving us an overview of that Good Samaritan Law here in the UAE and some of the implications, especially when we look at cardiac arrest management? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, thank you for actually for giving us some time about this really important topic uh, that not only um, will hopefully help the community at large and also help us as frontline workers um, our pa- help our patients and help what we do every day. So I'm just going to I'm just going to give you a bit of a of a, of a background. So you're at the re- at the restaurant and then um, you're having dinner with your family and then you hear somebody choke. And you're looking at them and you say, okay, I need to intervene and intervene. Prior to this law, if you were to intervene with good intention, you could actually potentially be liable for intervening uh, if if you're causing damage. So if you're trying to resuscitate somebody, then potentially you can be sued for it. Mm. When the law was, yeah, I know, it's pretty bad actually. It is because it it goes against our our instincts, I think, as people that need to intervene to help, to be human to do what we can but i'm sure as you as you correctly point out there that if there are implications our best of intentions go wrong that would put an awful lot of people off so tell us what the latest kind of iteration is then Absolutely. So since 2020, the UAE actually is the first Arab nation who actually implemented the law. And the idea behind it is that if you are going to, if any one of us, uh, whether you're a doctor or not a doctor, has good intentions and wants to help somebody during a medical emergency, regardless of the emergency, whether it's cardiorespiratory arrest or somebody choking or somebody bleeding, you would you would help and not fear that somebody afterwards would come after you for possible medical for possible legal liabilities. So your good intentions would actually potentially be rewarded and not punished. 
Um, and this is really the idea behind the Good Samaritan Law, is that we want the public, we want people who have good intentions, who are capable of helping people in dire need in the community to be able to actually um, intervene when they are needed, not fearing that, you know, I might get sued if something happens or, you know, might fear for, for their, God forbid, their livelihood or anything like that, provided mm-hmm. the person, of course, has good intentions. So this is really revolutionary. Um, and it's uh, the idea, and I can tell you about the implications, but the idea is because prior to that kind of law, if somebody goes into cardiac arrest, um, before they get to the emergency department, which is really the tip of the iceberg, one of ten will actually not make it, uh, will actually not make it. With this law, we can actually resuscitate six out of ten people if they have received first aid on scene, which is called mm-hmm. by standard CPR. So this is really for us, honestly, when I get a phone call from the ambulance service telling me, listen, I have a young person coming in cardiorespiratory arrest, the first question I want to know is, was there any bystander first aid CPR given? Because if they tell me this, I, I'm super happy because the chance of me reviving somebody who had bystander CPR are much higher than if I have someone who's never gotten any help and is, bring, is coming from the field without any bystander uh, CPR. So this is really the implication. Those numbers... That's, I mean, that's incredible. It, re- it really is. However, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people still don't have confidence in their ability to, to do any work because they perhaps haven't necessarily had the training. So maybe we can help out a little bit there. You know, is there any specific training or certification requirements that, um, that you tend to recommend, um, whether that is in the workplace or just for everyone you know, listening today thinking, do you know what, I actually haven't had any first aid or training. What would you love to see people of the UAE getting qualified in? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great question. And um, so as far as the law is concerned, as long as the intention, the good, as long as you act in, as a good Samaritan, which means you have the intention to help, regardless of your training, then you're protected by the, the UAE law. However, in terms of getting training, I recommend each and every one of us, whether it's my husband, whether it's my mother, my father, to actually get basic CPR. If you go, if you just Google it and you look for CPR classes, which are American Heart Associated accredited, it's a half a day course. It's about four hours and they will teach you how to uh, check a pulse check a breathing, do basic cardiac maneuvers, and use a, a basic defibrillator. Because in the chain of survival, I will tell you, Helen, the chain of survival, the hospital is the tip of the iceberg. The chain of survival actually begins at the level of the bystander, the person who was there on scene who witnessed, and then it goes on with the ambulance service, and then we get the patients, really, it's the tip of the iceberg. So I recommend our community in the UAE and even around the world to actually go and get trained for basic CPR. It's called, if you Google it, you'll find CPR uh, classes in Dubai or in the UAE. I know it's given throughout the country. And uh, they uh, ideally should be American Heart Associate accredited. And you get a CPR provider course and it will really put you at ease. Like sometimes I think about I think about my you know the, we have a, whole, a lot of helpers in the house uh, mm-hmm. you know nannies housemaids our kids are you know sometimes are are left with uh, with our housemaids and now they're you know I really encourage the public each and every one of us to actually get trained in basic basic resuscitation. Absolutely. I mean, we, we do this with the hope that we'll never need to use it. But um, my goodness, just to have that confidence that, that you could. Um, could. Would you mind just telling us some of the signs to look out for if someone could be going into cardiac arrest? You know, is it is it like the, you know, we see in the films of someone clutching their chest and falling to their knees? Or are there more subtle signs, anything that we can look out for in order to intervene as early as possible in a safe and responsible way? 
Mm-hmm. Actually, actually, excellent question. So what I tell all the junior trainees, and I, I, I tell everyone, trust your gut. If you feel there's an emergency, there really is an emergency because our gut doesn't lie to us. This is probably the first thing. Um, in terms of our, in terms of what you can look at, is the way the person is breathing. Um, I always tell um, patients if the person is talking, that means there's air going through the cords. But if the patient stops talking and they're holding their neck, there is a problem because the air is not going through. There might be choking. Uh, the second thing I, I would recommend people looking at is the color of the individual. Um, you know, normal people which have no problems with with their heart, you look pink. And um, but somebody who's turning into a gray area, a grayish kind of coloring, a bluish discoloration, then you have to start thinking something might be going on. Um, and of course, the typical sign holding your chest and falling to the ground, classic sign of, of a, a cardiac arrest. But in a nutshell, instinct is very important. You feel something is wrong, something is probably wrong. Second thing, mm-hmm. looking at the color of the person, you know, they turn grayish, bluish before they collapse, and they're breathing. If somebody's not making any noise and they're trying to, there's a blockage somewhere. Um, and lastly, um, Dr. Brina, I wanted to ask you in terms of making sure that someone does get to the hospital, number to call, what information you need to communicate to make sure that that ambulance gets there as soon as possible? Mm, absolutely. Great, great question, Helen. So the number to call is 999. Uh, this is the number to the ambulance service. What I would recommend, uh, they have, there is a Makani uh, number that you can potentially uh, give, I mean, give them. The one thing is that I find really, really useful is to give them the intersection, the biggest intersection or big landmark where you are. Because that's how sometimes they will ask. And I've done it. I've simulated this for my own home, actually. The first thing they ask me is um, the 999. And then they ask me where I am. And they ask me for a landmark. So I give them a Bacani number. And I give them a big landmark, like a big petro station, a big McDonald's. Uh, and they were able to find me that way. So they will send somebody uh, for help. Um, of course, you want to take the victim, put them on, on, on the flat surface, and then start initiating maneuver, man, whatever maneuvers you are comfortable with. So this is, um, that, does that answer the question, Helen? It absolutely does. Um, Dr. Sabrina Baduk, um, I'm completely in awe of you. I mean, I honestly am. Not all superheroes wear coats. <laughs> Sometimes it's a, it's a white coat. Um, and I, I really, really appreciate that. And it's very, very encouraging to hear about the Good Samaritan Law, how it has evolved. Um, we've had a number of messages for you. I just want to quickly, quickly put this one to you from Summer, saying how do we differentiate between cardiac arrest, heart attack in terms of symptoms, and what do we do in case of someone having a cardiac arrest? I understand we can't interfere now as, the per, as per the new law. Um, Summer, you, you can. Um, that law has, um, has since changed, that Good Samaritan Law, encouraging bystanders with the correct training to step in and ultimately save a life. You mentioned there the numbers are, are really, really staggering in terms of having some kind of bystander intervention and you feel hopeful having heard yes. that someone has been on the scene. Um, Dr. Sabrina, thank you so much to you and the team. Really appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Anytime. Sabrina Baduk um, is a... Uh, Thank you. I would say I hope to see you soon, but but maybe not in A and E. Maybe not in no, the no, ER. I mean, come and visit and say hi anytime. Um, okay. But yeah, <laughs> as a visitor, no problem, and we're happy to have you. Uh, Dr. Sabrina Baduk, consultant emergency medicine and head of the emergency department at Alzara Hospital. to have you with us today and get ready for a bit of festive coziness as we find out about a new Christmas themed book from UAE based author Kathy Urban. Um, she is the woman behind the Hop Lola Hop book series and the latest one is out now. We've got a date for the diary. Kathy joining us on the line now. How are you? 
I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. I can't believe it's there. Like, I know. I don't know where time's gone, but we it's are crazy. on the countdown. And if anyone's feeling a bit stuck for a last minute gift or stocking filler or indeed something to do this coming Friday, we are here to help. Um, Kathy, tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a children's author. Where did it begin for you? Um, I think with everyone, it starts with an idea. Um, that you that sort of slowly grows, um, you know, something that just happens in your life. And um, in our case, it was a little toy bunny that was gifted to my daughter when she was born, um, which she very quickly, you know, grew fond of. Um, you know, that sort of first early best friend that you take everywhere mm-hmm. that you care for. Um, and then sometimes goes missing. Um, I think I mentioned that before. Um, I never, re- um, never really read that manual, the parenting manual that says to have a, you know, backup toy. Oh yes. Not take it out of the bedroom or any of that. The, the number of messages um, I see on Facebook groups going. They keep growing. We've we've lost this penguin. Has yeah. anyone got a replacement? And we've tried doing her old switcheroo, but she knows. Or the smell isn't the same, and he's he's determined that's not the same monkey. And you're like, oh gosh, yeah. When they start to show signs of total attachment to One Piece, it's a it's a it's an it's it's a parenting moment. I have to say. So tell us then a little bit about the decision to turn this relationship into a story, which was the first hop, Lola, hop. Yes. So the first story came about because um, whenever we lost that um, toy, I was trying to kind of create a distance from that very dreaded situation that my daughter felt about losing her toy. So I used to make up stories, um, telling her about the fun things the bunny might be up to while, you know, we are looking for her. And, um, you know, it had a very positive effect on her. You know, it encouraged her, the Im- imagination. It, um, you know, made her a little less upset. And it was my husband who then said, Kathy, I think other kids would enjoy that too. Mm-hmm. So that's how I started. I, um, you know, I started sitting down a few years ago to, to then write the first book, um, just with the idea to... Um, you know, share their stories with with others. That was about, yeah, I think two years ago. Um, And it started with one story. And then I thought, well, that was actually quite nice. I actually enjoy the writing process. Um, My background is in journalism. I've been writing for for adults, for Mm -hmm. older people. So it was, you know, a new audience that I discovered. And I've absolutely fallen in love with that audience. They're so sweet. And what about... (laughs) There's a bit of a misconception that writing for children is easier than writing for adults. And it's it's absolutely... Isn't, isn't the case. It's a very different discipline. And then, of course, working with an illustrator as well. What about getting published? What was that process like? Um, that was also different as well because, um, so the book is self-published um, and that was on purpose because that gave me the creativity, the, the creative freedom to decide what to, what I wanted to do the, with the book when I would want to publish it. But I also made sure that um, I had all the help I needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very well aware of it. It's um, it's a different um you know, it's a different type of writing. It's not straightforward news that what I was used to writing. It's 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 fiction. It's fiction for a younger audience where maybe some of the things we might find funny, they might not get. So I had to, you know, adjust it. It's a different it's a br- different blueprint, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, I had um yeah, I was working with a team of editors, um, designers. I had my lovely illustrator Siski who was very hands on. The He's illustrations the- are so charming and yeah. whimsical and they they feel quite nostalgic to me. It kind of reminds me of those kind of Shirley Hughes books that I was reading as a child. Um, so I think that's a really lovely kind of marriage that you've, that you've made there with your collaborator. Yeah, and I think that was important for me. I think Siski was one of the reasons I wanted to, you know, have control over the creative process because, you know, if I would sign off the, the rights to my book, um, to my words, um, it could be anyone, like it could be matched with anyone else. And I, I you know, I found about found out about Siski and I just fell in love with the pictures, like you said. They're really like whimsical 
beautiful little illustrations. They're handmade, watercolored, and I think um, they really help bring the story to life. And I, I think do. it's sometimes you have to have a match between the idea of the story and then you know the artist. So now you've had two books and now we've got our third which is the festive hop lola hop it's a magical christmas adventure and there's someone new on the scene tell us tell us who's come into the picture yes so lola has the first thing with happens with someone else enters their life um you know both lola and her human friend ella um you know they're getting ready for christmas doing all the things you know that you love doing around this time of year up until the point that um you know ella discovers in the toy shop window something that she suddenly realizes she really desires and that doesn't go down too well initially with poor lola who suddenly feels a bit sidelined um i think it's something that maybe some kids might be able even able to re- relate to when you know with the arrival of a new sibling when suddenly mm-hmm. they have to learn to share the space around mummy with somebody else so i think that was something i had in mind as well so in our story lola not quite sure how to cope with the situation um ends up as she always does um moving away a little bit sadder not hopping but more you know trudging Um, through the untrodden snow (laughs) Um, but you know ends up with a good adventure you know she comes across wonderful places they're all magical and Christmassy um, has all the elements that I'm trying to I've been trying to weave into the book you know she gets to meet the certain gentleman (gasps) the the big man yes of course Mm -hmm. you know helping him being like a little bunny elf um, she um, she actually comes across a theatre, which I was really excited to share in the story. It's a real I'm, place. It's a real place. It's a it's a place in Wimbledon. It's um, they have a beautiful children's theatre that um, I used to go to with um, with Emma with my daughter when she was little when we mm. used to live there. Um, you know they have beautiful place. Um, they have I think the Snow Queen is on at the moment over there. Um, I was just there fit. a few weeks ago doing a reading um, in the place where the story is also taking place. Oh, that's really special. Um, but it's special because for me it's it's a memory book in that sense. Um, but at the same time, obviously, it could be any theatre anywhere in the world. But I think kids love going to the theatre. Again, it's, you know, we think of Pante, we think of Christmas Story. Again, it's a lovely, you know, festive element um, that's, that is in the book. Tell us then about meeting children. and Because they're, they're tough critics, kids, um, when it comes to storytelling, you know, getting their feedback. What's it like meeting your mini readers? Um, it's adorable. I mean, yes, they are quite hands-on. So you want to make sure that, you know, you keep them engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they wander off, especially the little ones, and there's nothing you can do about it. But um, I try and keep the, the story times I run very interactive. So sometimes I break them up. I ask a lot of questions. They're very eager to share their stories about their favorite, you know, teddies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we, we have a bit of fun and dance in between. Um, I do visit a lot of schools as well. Um, which is so lovely. So I don't only just meet the young children where the books um, the books are aimed for. Well, yeah, which age, age group would you say Lola's for? So it's really the three to six. So it's the FS1, FS2s, um, year ones. That's really the, especially the little girls who love it. But even the boys love it as well. I think mm-hmm. I always want to make sure that, you know, there's something for the boys in it as well. It's not just for girls, the books. Um, so that's really the age group. But I do um, meet a lot of older children as well. Um, schools invite us here to you know a lot of local authors not just myself but others too to you know to visit schools and um well promote reading and literacy and absolutely you know it's, it's one thing to have a book on the shelf but to be able to meet the person behind it you know for them to think oh gosh you know i have an idea this could be a book you know kathy's 
Kathy's an, an author, she's done it. That must be lovely to hear some of their ideas as well. No, absolutely. And I think this is so important. I think they feel um, very empowered being able to share their ideas as well. And I think for me, what it's important whenever I do visit a school, I don't just share the, the final product. I do talk a lot about the process mm-hmm. and that not everything is glitz and glam. And it's a process. It's a collaborative effort between mm-hmm. lots of people. I'm even that honest. I share some of the early manuscripts. And the comments that mm-hmm. my editor might have made <laughs> next to some of the sentences saying like, ah, let's let's work on that. And I think it helps them realizing, you know, it takes time, mm-hmm. you know, but, but with every step you grow. And I think it's also important for them to see the, the real person behind it, to see how they grow with everything they do. I share um, some of the early Stickman sketches that Siski's making. Oh, that's really cool and to that's see. that's so cool and I love it. And Siski actually made a, a, a lovely little reel of, you know, the Stickman Lola, how she sort of then sort of morphs that evolution. into that evolution. And it's beautiful. But I think it's really encouraging for children and like, I guess, empowering them, encouraging them to use their imagination, not being too scared about putting that idea in their mind, in mm-hmm. their head onto paper. Because mm-hmm. I think it is, it, that's a big hurdle. What about the business of publishing when you think about, you know, copies sold and valuing your time? Any insights for any aspiring authors out there? You know, do you keep an eye on the copy, number of copies you've sold, for example? I, I am. I have to. I mean, it's something um, I wasn't familiar with. I am, you know, I don't have a big background in, um, you know, in business development, but it is turning into a business. So you mm-hmm. have a passion project. And when you actually realize how much that costs, you obviously have to you know, start putting, you know, sort of a different focus on it as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, I do very much enjoy the, the creative process, but it ends up being a very small part of it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of the marketing, you have to make sure to build relationships, um, to sell the books, to actually be enabling you to, you know, continue. Absolutely. Doing the writing. Absolutely. And it's it's a big process. Um, and in the end, I, I always say um, writing a book or publishing a product, uh, a book is the same as publishing or creating apparel or any other product. You know, you want to sell it. You want to market mm-hmm. it. You have to go put yourself out there. I don't always. I thought I could just sit behind my desk and continue writing. <laughs> <laughs> Have so that lovely little writing room. So you do a lot of, a lot of other things as well. But um you know, I do enjoy the people I meet. Um, I think I learn a lot. They continue to inspire me as well. I ask, I get actually approached by like quite a lot of teachers, um, which I think they would be perfect children's book writers because they, they work with the kids all the time. They mm-hmm. know what they like and what mm-hmm. they need. And, um, you know, I think there's a book in everyone and I encourage people to, to give it a go and seek the help they need. Well, thank you for your honesty. Um, we are helping people out with a, a date for the diary. Kids are off school this week. I feel like they broke up very early this year, just uh, just, just speaking of teachers. So I hope everyone's having a lovely break. Um, but this coming Friday, so two days from, from today, you've got an event happening at the Green Room in Sports City. Cathy, tell us, tell us what's in store and who it's for. Yes, it's um, well, it's a Hop Lola Hop, a magical Christmas adventure mini movie premiere. Oh, um, lovely. So I have been collaborating with Dubai Moms Me. They organize playgroups across Dubai. Um, and each week it's a different theme, usually quite often around the book. So this book, this week, it's all about, been about Lola and her Christmas adventures. I've been reading to the children um, this week. Um, they've been able to take copies of the book home as well. Um, and um, yeah, we have something special in store on Friday. Um, where 
we're going to have a little screening, a read aloud screening where the bunny actually hops around um, the screen and it's, it's beautiful. Oh. I quite often get asked by parents um, whether I would ever consider doing an audiobook um, for children and my kids love audiobooks. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the idea how it all came about. Yeah, bringing it to life. Bringing it to life and I think it's, it's a perfect way to sort of weave, ease into the weekend, you know, before everything happens next week. It does indeed. Um, so in terms of coming along, is it open to everyone? Is it a case of getting in touch with the Dubai Mums Meet group? Yes. Um, so best way for you to do that, you go on to DubaiMumsMeet.com. Um, there's a booking link. And with every online booking, you actually receive a free copy Fantastic. of the Christmas book. So, you know, they're also trying to... Um, you what know, a gift. It's a lovely gift, a gift of reading. Absolutely. Um, plus a movie time. There's loads of others. We're not just reading um, and watching the movie. There's popcorn, there's decorations, there's crafts and dance and so many things they're doing so it really is a like a, a lovely afternoon out um for the family um on friday afternoon and for getting a hold of the new the new hop lola hop the magical christmas adventure kathy urban what's the best way of finding it you know supporting our local bookshops and getting getting our hands in it before the big day yes so i always say go and visit your favorite bookshop they love to see you ask about the books we're lucky that um the hop lola hop books are stocked here at various stores across dubai they're in bookworm McGrudy's, Akinokunia, they're also online on Academy. Um, Miss Antini um, sells the books as well, and then you have some various online outlets as well. And um, if you're in Sharjah, for instance, the House of Wisdom is now stocking the books as well. So there are lots of places. Um, do get in touch with me if you're struggling. And what's the best way of getting in touch, whether it's to pick your brains on all things writing or indeed to uh, to find out about what Lola and Ella have been up to? Message me. Um, you can go into my website, um, www.hoplolahop.com. Brilliant. Thank you so <laughs> um, much. Thank you. Cathy, really appreciate it. You can find the third in the Lola series, Hop Lola Hop, a magical Christmas adventure. Now, as we said, support your local bookshops and a brilliant last minute gift. Plus, sorting out your Friday afternoon. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.